Welcome to the Mike Smith Show podcast. This is your one-stop shop for all the latest happenings in BC. From breaking news and developing stories to giving the big headlines a closer look, the Mike Smith Show is here to keep you dialed in and up to date. Let's begin. All right, let's talk about the British Columbia Housing Density Plan rolled out this week by the provincial government. So this would allow up to six homes to be built on a single-family lot. Now, that is if you are near rapid transit. Otherwise, it could be four homes. So imagine that now. You've got a single-family detached home. You replace that with a fourplex, four homes on one lot. Another interesting part of this, you take a look at this bill the B.C. government brought in here. Now, they say, look, if the municipalities don't play along here, they don't go along with this and start densifying these neighborhoods and building all these homes, they might bring the hammer down, force them to do it. There's a provincial override here would allow the minister to step in and force municipalities to build all these new homes in these neighborhoods. Got Adil Danani standing by to discuss. First, let's have a listen to the housing minister here, Ravi Kalon. Let's listen. The targets for each municipality has been set, meaning more homes will be built soon for people in communities that they love. These housing targets put forward by the province mark a 30% increase in overall housing to be built in these communities compared to what's been previously planned. Whoa, okay, a 30% increase in what the municipalities had been planning to build. Let's discuss it now with my guest, Adil Danani, real estate analyst. Hey, Adil, thanks for coming on today. Good morning, Mike. Thank you uh, for having me on. Yeah, you bet. I always appreciate your time. What do you think of this plan? Um, well, it's it's no surprise. I mean, uh, David, E.B., and his team have been, um, have been uh, rigorously working on you know, bringing on more density in all residential neighborhoods. And I think when they announced their uh, housing affordability plan in the spring, uh, I made promises of, of a blanket up zone. Um, you know, now they're delivering. Um, they've essentially come out and said, um, we're, we're going to keep uh, municipalities accountable for their housing stock. You know, historically, if you wanted more house, um, you'd have to move east, you know, because of affordability restrictions for most home buyers. Now, with this new plan, you might be able to stay put where you grew up and just, you know, downsize into something more ground oriented. You know, a lot of this is addressing that missing middle, which we've talked about um, in detail um, over our previous uh, discussions. And that's the housing stock that people can generally afford. Um, It's got a backyard. It's got a front door. You know, I think it's that next closest option to a single family home. Will it be affordable, though? I mean, this is one of the criticisms that I've heard. You could say, okay, well, you can build four homes on this lot instead of one, but what you will end up with is four unaffordable homes. I mean, where is the, is there any assurance that these homes are actually going to be affordable for normal people with reason with normal incomes? Well, we all know uh, incomes haven't uh, risen aligned with uh, with property values. You know, average income in BC is just north of sixty thousand um, dollars, and you know, sixty three percent of household income goes generally towards housing costs, whether that's rent or mortgage debt. Um, so the hope here, this is the hope. The hope is that with this blanket rezone or up zone, that they should put some theoretically put some downward pressure on prices. Um, right now, uh, in the last ninety days, Vancouver approved their multiplex program, 
which essentially blanket up zoned RS1 lots to give more density to build up to six units if you're, you know, a big enough lot. Now, this is right. happening essentially province-wide. So yeah. you're going to see a lot more of this product come to market, whether that's 12, 18, 24 months from now. Um, and theoretically, when you have more sellers than buyers, um, that should put some downward pressure on prices. And, you know, an interesting um, um, item to note in, in Ravi's release, Ravi Kellen's release, the housing minister, he said he doesn't anticipate for land values to sharply rise. Um, it's it's going to be int very interesting to tell, you know, with a blanket up zone across all municipalities, there may be some validity to a statement. But I think time will tell. There's still a lot of uncertainty, a lot of gray area. Um, I think there is some autonomy here with um, with um, the municipalities in terms of how they are going to upzone uh, certain neighborhoods and probably make a case for those transit connected neighborhoods. Right now, you go 400 meters north, east, southwest of a SkyTrain line, and you've got massive high density, right? So I think a natural extension, maybe maybe um, five to ten city blocks, um, you know, uh, outside of that. Um, those boundaries would be a great fit for more for more of this middle uh, middle density housing. Yeah, I think it makes a lot of sense actually uh, to densify around rapid transit stations for sure. I I wonder though, Adil, for your thoughts, if this is setting up a confrontation here between the province and municipalities. Could you take a look at this bill? It's got this override provision that yeah. would allow the province to step in and force through some of these housing density plans in neighborhoods, even if the local municipal government is, is unhappy with that. Let me play a clip here for you. Richmond Mayor Malcolm Brody, he's one of several mayors that have spoken out here saying, hang on a second here now. You know, we're the closest level of government. We understand the needs of our own communities here and what about parking what about infrastructure let's have a listen to them i'll get your thoughts malcolm brody what may work in one location it may well not work in another location what about the other services that are involved police fires schools the hospitals we're going to have cars where are they going to park where are they going to park? I mean, this is the one we hear all the time, that you could have Carmageddon, you could have parking nightmares. Adil, what do you think of that? So in Vancouver's multiplex, if we use that as a barometer or a gauge, they have reduced their housing, um, their parking their parking requirements um, on their multiplex uh, projects. So that could get carried over um, as other municipalities start adopting this more density. So I have three concerns, okay? First is, uh, historically, city services have been designed to support four lots you know, four, four lots per acre, and as a result, four families per acre, the new legislation is encouraging 16 to 20 households per acre, right? Four units for every lot. Um, now multiply that by four. There is a, there's a bit of a, 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 an insert about potential for laneway homes or additional suites, even in those multiplexes. Um, so that's my first concern is, do we have the sewer um, and public services to, you know, support um, this new initiative. Uh, number two um, is definitely parking. It's already yeah. an issue. So this is going to have to be legislation, a part and parcel of how municipalities adopt this this up zone is how are they going to manage parking? I think there will be naturally parking relaxations. If you're within a you know transit hub or within a transit corridor, there has to be relaxations. And there are broader concerns than if you are in a, single family home that, you know, is, is deemed to be more of a luxurious neighborhood. You know, are you going to want to see, 
you know, the streetscape change, that's a, that's a, that's a realistic concern, right? Yeah. If you're in South Granville, you know, Point Grey, um, you know, that's already, um, you know, if it's an RS1, it already falls within the Vancouver requirements. Now, if you carry that over to areas of Burnaby, like Government Road or Buckingham Heights, are you going to want to see that additional density? And lastly, my, my biggest concern is the uptake. You know, if you're going to see broad-based upzoning and you're going to see lots of supply come to market, remember that example we spoke about a couple of months ago? Victoria has not seen one application since they've um, implemented their new multiplex policy. Now, of course, that is a stark you know, example. Um, um, I, I do see uptake for this, but I don't know if it's going to be as, you know, people are going to be, developers are going to be jumping on this because we still don't know what the additional city fees are going to be associated oh. with uh, with this policy, right? Great points. My guess is Adil Danani, Danani Group of Real Estate Advisors. Here's the other thing I wonder about, Adil. If you live in one of these neighborhoods now, if you're fortunate enough to live in a detached home in, an, in a nice neighborhood, you love the character of the neighborhood exactly the way it is. A lot of people don't want their neighborhoods to change. But suddenly the home next door says, oh, guess what, guys? I'm going to be tearing down my house and putting up a fourplex, four condos right next door to you. How will people react react to that let me play a clip here for you ian cromwell okay he's a vancouver housing advocate he thinks don't worry about this everyone's gonna love it let's have a listen I'm sure there are going to be some people who will who will only see the downsides to a, a denser and healthier city but I think there are a lot of people who are going to welcome having more people when they walk down the street you walk down the street, there'll be more people. This is good. People are going to love it. Adil, do you think that'll be the reaction? It won't be the reaction of everybody, but do you think it will be a big problem? Uh, more people uh, equals more cars, um, uh, more requirement for services. Look, I don't think there's a simple answer to this. I think generally speaking, if you've been in a neighborhood for multiple decades, you grew up in that neighborhood and you've seen it, uh, you've seen it uh, a certain way, um, I think there's going to be an adjustment period for folks. Um, as we start seeing these multiplexes start coming up throughout uh, the province, I also think that it's not—it's not. This is not coming as a surprise. You know, we've had uh, some good lead time um, um, for this policy. You know, we had Vancouver adopt it. Burnaby, in the, in the recent few weeks, has also adopted a very similar single phase. Their first phase is is is, is more duplex homes. Now, their their next phase is also going to be adopting some sort of multiplex policy. In a lot of these. Um, you know, archaically zoned single-family neighborhoods. We need to see, um, we need to be proactive and we need to see evolution um, of, or, uh, you know, an evolution of these single-family neighborhoods to support more housing. So I know it has to come, it's just a matter of how we manage it. I think that's going to be really important. Talking housing density, housing affordability. Adil Danani is my guest, Danani Group of Real Estate Advisors. Lots of calls. Courtney in Langley. Hi, Courtney, go ahead. Yes, uh does this apply to people with acreage, one acre, five, ten, or is it only city lots? Adil, do you know? Yeah, so that's still not um, established. I think it's going to be up to mayors to see where, um, how how far this gets extended, what neighborhoods would be supportive of it in terms of what where it works. Um, but I think you know if you're not if you're not in the the ALR. And if you're reasonably connected to the city, you're probably going to have a good chance of falling under this new multiplex. Uh, yeah, multiplex policy. Yeah, I imagine you would. I think I think the key there would be the agricultural land reserve, as you mentioned, yeah. there, the ALR. I mean, if you're in the ALR, then you got a lot of barriers there. But if if you're Absolutely. not, 
I, I can't see why you wouldn't it wouldn't apply. Dave and Burnaby. Hi, Dave. Go ahead. Hey, good morning. Um, this is why you don't want the NDP in charge of anything serious. Um, all you have to do is rezone Vancouver, the entire city of Vancouver, unlimited height. Go for it. Build whatever you want. Um, because it's affecting every other city in British Columbia. You're not in my backyard. So all you do is you lift the charter, you rezone Vancouver, unlimited height, anywhere you want. Problem solved. You don't have to go through this crap. But, of course, David Eby and uh, the NDP control, you know, we've got to have downtown east side. We've got to help people get high, man. We've got to give them cocaine. Well, okay, Dave. Well, unlimited height, I mean... You know, you can't say unlimited height anywhere you want. Adil, your thoughts? Um, that's an interesting comment. I mean, uh, <laughs> look, um, I have a young family. Uh, I have I have some reservations around, you know, blanket up zone of the entire province, single family lots. However, I'm also mindful that if we want future generations to afford an experience living in, in Metro Vancouver, like these measures need to be taken, right? I just th- I think they need to be taken thoughtfully and they need to be executed in a in a, in a way where the public gets educated and there's some engagement. And I think we will get the uptake and I think we will get the support. You know, not everyone wants to live in the city of Vancouver. Not everyone wants to live in the core. Maybe you grew up in the Tri-Cities and you wanted and you want to raise your family in the Tri-Cities because you've got roots there. Right. So um, I think there will be some positivity that comes out of this. A lot more information needs to to unfold here over mm-hmm. the next um, over the next you know weeks and months. Mike and Surrey. Hi, Mike. Go ahead. Hey, guys. Uh, is that I'm involved in, in selling some properties and condos now. When you, when you buy a property in Vancouver or even in Surrey, and you're going to spend $2 million, and you're going to divide it into four, let's say, so each unit is going to be 500000 to start, then you're going to build a property on it for three fifty. You're going to be around eight fifty. My daughter's a school teacher. She made $80,000 a year. She can only qualify for a $350,000 a year mortgage. So you couldn't get two school teachers to buy what you're calling affordable housing in this city. So let's get. Okay. Thank you for the call. You're breaking up there a bit, but I think you, I think I got the gist of your, your point there. We're we talking about affordability, Adele. And when we talk about this missing middle, right, this is what this is about. The missing middle of housing. What, what does that mean? Does it mean that these houses are supposed to be affordable for people in the middle class? Yeah, so I mean, I think affordability is all relative. Um, you know, I think if you are at that uh, uh, that medium income in in, in British Columbia at, at $60,000 a year, I mean, I think it's not just about price point, it's about geography, right? And what you're willing to compromise to achieve, you know, home ownership. You know, are you willing to go further east? Are you willing to go to Maple Ridge or Mission? Because I can tell you, um, like for sure, there's there's affordable, more, relatively more affordable options there than you would get in Vancouver, right? And you're still transit connected. Langley is a, a, another great example. Um, so I think I think what we have to um, what we have to look at here is this will see this will result in more supply, and as a result of more supply, um, we should start seeing um, some stabilization in pricing. And over the next twelve to twenty four months, if we see more supply and we see rates come down to more normal levels, which is, you know, a realistic expectation. I think you are going to see more people trying to getting into the market and you are going to see, you know, relative affordability. Adil, thank you for your thoughts on this today. I appreciate it. 
Thank you, Mike. Have a great day. All right, here we go now with retractable dog leashes. Are these retractable leashes dangerous to your dog? Do they pose a risk to other dogs? Are they bad for the environment? The city of Saanich on Vancouver Island sure thinks so. City councilors there voted this week to ban retractable dog leashes in the city. I've got Brad Patterson standing by to discuss this now. But first, have a listen to these city officials here. You're going to hear Saanich City Councilor Karen Harper, also the mayor, Dean Murdoch. Here they are speaking to Czech News in Victoria. Retractable leashes are generally dangerous to both people, pets, and the environment. So there's multiple reasons for doing that. That will mean that uh, when you're using our parks, you're going to have to have your dog on a two-meter leash. Okay, a two-meter leash. That is the law of the land in the city of Saanich. They're banning retractable dog leashes. Let's discuss it with my guest now, Brad Pattison. Brad is a professional dog trainer and dog behaviorist. Hustleupdogtraining.ca is his website. He's the author of many dog training books, including Brad Pattison Unleashed and Puppy SOS. Hey, Brad, thanks for coming on today. Oh, thank you very much for inviting me, Mike. Okay, Brad, here we go on this one. Let's get into this now. Retractable dog leashes. Where do you stand on this? I am absolutely elated that Saanich would make this move. Uh, You touched on a couple things right out of the gate, and it's true. They are dangerous to people. They are dangerous to dogs. And I can, I mean, the information out there and and the harm that these uh, extendable leashes cause to people and dogs is obscene. It's crazy how many injuries and amputations happen because of these extended leashes. And I'm not sure if you know this, but back uh, in 2009 or 2010, there was actually a $1.3 million lawsuit against a retractable leash company because it failed. So, yeah. So, I mean, there's history of retractable leashes failing. And in half of Canada and half of the United States of America, we also have 50% ban. So this isn't new. It's not like some counselor in Saanich came up with some something like, oh, let's just ban extendable leashes. There is vast amount of history, negative history on 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 these leashes, and they really should be banned. I've always I've always supported a ban on them. Okay. For every reason. Okay, that's very interesting. Let's dig a little deeper into this, Brad, here. So so you think the dog the, these leashes, these extendable leashes are are dangerous to the dog. Why is that? Well, it's not that I think it. I've actually seen it factually, and that is I've seen Achilles tendons torn on on dogs. I've seen dogs that have been gotten tangled up and then the rope burn or a slice on the throat. So, uh, you know, we all talk about skate guards now because that one hockey player got cut on the throat. Well, these extended leashes do the exact same thing. So let's... Mm. Like we can't guard our dogs by putting padding around them, but we can certainly do the right thing. And that is get rid of them. Even the extendable leashes, Mike, have a warning on them that they can amputate your fingers. Oh, man. Okay. Okay. Are they also dangerous to other dogs? Because I've heard this argument as well. Like, let's say you have a dog, you're walking on one of these extendable leashes, you 
and the dog lunges at at another dog uh, or or a person for that matter. Is, is that a problem? It is a problem, and I'll, I'll give you a little bit of background on why it's a problem, so your listeners have a good understanding. And that is the majority of extended leashes range anywhere between 15 to 25 feet okay so five to eight meters five to nine meters and what that looks like is it might be 15 feet to your right but it's also 15 feet to your left so when dogs get tangled they have up to uh you know 30 feet if two dogs are on on extended leashes there's 30 feet of of dogs now getting tangled and that's when dogs get uh damaged they get uh, torn ACLs because they get tangled, their legs get stretched out because a dog is pulling. Um, people will also have injury to their shoulders and their joints because the, the they're not letting go of the handle. Um, dogs then get their the extended leashes wrapped around their throats, which I've seen, their bodies, which I've seen. I've actually known of one dog that had its tail amputated because of an extended leash wow. from somebody else. Wow. Okay. That's real. That's really sad. Okay. Speaking to professional dog trainer, Prad Pattison. Okay. Let's listen to some dog walkers in the city of Saanich reacting to this ban on these uh, extendable leashes here. Uh, these dog walkers, once again, speaking to Czech news here, let's listen. They're a tool. So just like any training item, it's a tool for blind dogs, especially useful because they can't see. So that gives them a tether back to mom. So I don't understand why they would just ban something. I've honestly always preferred these, but I, I have heard, I haven't heard the specifications, but I've heard that they are unsafe. I use the retractable leashes, they're great. It seems pretty heavy-handed when it hadn't been introduced until last night. Never have used one, uh, but I think people should be free to use one if that's what they choose. Okay, some uh, dog walkers there in Saanich speaking to Czech News in, in Victoria. I, I was interested, Brad, in your thoughts on the, the first voice we heard there of the guy who said that these extendable leashes are good for uh, blind dogs. What do you think of that? I think that that's obscene. I, if someone was to walk my blind dog with a long leash and not have absolute control of my dog and the safety of where it's going to walk into a creek, into a tree, off of a, a curb or, or a small decline that's going to trip it up, yeah, that's that's pretty ridiculous. That's showing lack of respect and care for the animal, but making sure that it's really easy and, and simple for the dog walker. So yeah. obviously, in my opinion, and it is only my opinion, but that that person isn't looking after the care of the animal. They're looking at their, how easy mobility it is for them to manage a dog. Okay, let me ask your thoughts here on what kind of leashes or and especially a collar for a dog that you think is appropriate. And and you've made the case in the past here that these harness collars that you see those a lot. I know that you are opposed to those and you've made the case in the past for a martingale collar for a dog when you're out walking your dog. Brad, can you comment on that? Because I got to tell you. Uh, last time you were on the show, I got a couple of emails from listeners saying, like, why does Brad like these martingale collars for dogs? Aren't those like a choke chain? Aren't those like cruel to your dog? Your thoughts on that? Yeah, it's a great question. And thank you for, for opening up this conversation. Yeah. The martingale collar it doesn't matter where the dog goes. If it's on your right side, left side, behind or slightly in front, you can still manage the dog. So with a choke chain, choke chains, you can only size for the left side or the right side. That means if the dog is to change sides, the choke chain will lock in position. It will not release. Okay, oh. so there's limitations to choke chains. 
prong collars, for instance, I don't agree with those because many people don't know how to use them and they usually cause more harm than good. But with the martingale collar, it doesn't, if they're sized correctly, they're never going to slip off. So even if a dog goes into the ocean, into the lake and they get wet and their coat gets, you know, slimmed down because of that moisture, even in the rain, the martingale will not slip off. Whereas a collar, a flat buckle collar, they have a higher probability of slipping off because people generally don't size them very tight. Yeah. Um, and then harnesses, I mean, harnesses are great if you have a sled dog. Fantastic if you're out uh, doing win different winter sports where you need a dog in a harness. But for our everyday dogs, and, and also one last thing, Mike, there's a lot of noise on the internet about, oh, the trachea, the trachea, the martingale collar is going to damage the trachea. Yeah. Well, a veterinarian introduced the, in West Vancouver, actually, years ago, introduced the martingale collar to me. He's the person who, who really brought the martingale front row and center in the industry. So I don't understand why a veterinarian would bring something that's going to do more harm than good, but he brought something called the okay. martingale collar. All right, Brad Pattison is my guest. Hustle up dog training, uh, talking about retractable dog leashes. They're being banned in the city of Saanich. Let's go right to your phone calls. Jennifer in Mission. Hi, Jennifer. Go ahead. Hey, Mike. How you doing? Um, I'm good. Yeah, I've, I've seen the retractable leash being used by people, um, and it has ended in tragedy a couple of times, you know, where the dog will run out onto the, onto the street and the person using the, the thing doesn't have time to sort of realize what's going on and can't hit the brake on the on the leash um if another dog is coming up to that dog on the leash and the dog starts to run away again there's not enough time to you know the reaction time for the people who own those leashes it it's not enough time to to safely control your dog either from yeah. attacking another one or being attacked it's you know i've seen a dog run off into into traffic off of a sidewalk and get hit it's just it's awful. Um, your dog is supposed to be under control. Uh, retractable leash does not give the dog owner control, period. Um, okay. I think it's just a lazy way to walk your dog and still mm. be uh, following the leash laws. It's not, it doesn't make sense. They should be banned everywhere. Jennifer, thank you for the call. Brad, I suspect you'd agree with that. I absolutely do agree with her. And do, can I add some, some context to what she's sure. talking about with what she opened up with? In the U.S. as of 2020, so this is from the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. And this goes to to the, the team in Saanich that other people are saying that they didn't do their research. Well, he, here's some research. 8,198 people were emergency um, injuries, approximately 350. Uh, 57,000 injuries occurred nationwide, an estimated rate of 63.4 injuries per million, okay? Adults okay. accounted for 88% of the patients and 73% of those patients were female. So when, when we're talking about extended leashes, the, they do cause a lot of harm and you do not have an, uh, control of your dog. And it is, in, in my opinion, I agree fully with your listener, who called in that it is a very lazy way of pretending that your dog is under control with a 20, 25 foot string attached to it that can snap. Interesting. Let's go to Rachel on the line in Sawasan. Hi, Rachel, go ahead. Hi, it's Rochelle. Um, I agree with Jennifer. Um, I think that the extended leash should be banned everywhere. And it's exactly what she said. You don't have control over your dog. 
whether it's small, medium size, or a large, powerful dog, there is no control. And I've seen lots of big dogs on these extended leashes, and it sort of gives the owner a false um, comfort that, you know, they're allowing their dog to just kind of meander. And that's yeah. not how it should be. I'm a dog owner. I have been my whole entire life, and absolutely not. Rochelle, thank you. I agree. They should be thank you, Rich- thank you, Rochelle, for for the call. Let's go to another call. Mike in Parksville. Hi, Mike. Go ahead. Uh, yes, uh, I think the first thing should be uh, this guy's supposed to be a trainer. Train your dog. Uh, I'm in Parksville Hill. You know the boardwalk. I walk my dog on one of those extendable leash. He's fine. I say stop. He stops. I say this time of year I don't even put a leash on him. Because he's trained properly. That's the whole thing. These people are whining about tools. They're just tools. The Martin Gale is actually off of a saddle. It was originally off of a saddle. It was reworked and was reworked wrong, if you really think about it the way it was supposed to be. So that's mine is train your dog. Train your dog. Don't worry about a tool. Okay, Mike. Let's see what Brad says about that. Brad, go ahead. Well, he's he's absolutely right. Everyone should have their dog trained. I agree full heartedly. Um, but at the end of the day, you can have th- this extend a leash. The problem is the length. It doesn't matter how long, how well trained your dog is. People let these run out 25 feet while the dog goes pee and the person keeps walking. That's when a cyclist hits this tiny little thread and goes, you know, head over heels over their handlebars. Now they have a broken jaw, their face is a mess, and they might have a concussion. And now they're off to the hospital. It's having this thin little line that is the dangerous part. It's not whether your dog is trained or off leash or on leash or anything like that. It's the length of this leash. They're talking about the length of leashes should be two meters. Yeah. And that's what Sanich is pushing for. And I wholeheartedly 1000% agree with them. Okay, let's squeeze it. get in one more call. Barbara in New Westminster. Barbara, you got 30 seconds here. Okay, yes, go ahead. I'll and be quick. I was walking my two large dogs at heel quite some time ago. And uh, a dog on one of these flexi leashes approached me from the body language I saw. It was clear the dog was going to come and attack me. It was displayed all the symptoms. I was yelling at the owner to call the dog back, take it back. It was on the flexi leash. She was unable to retract that leash, could not pull it in, hand over hand. If it was not for my own dogs protecting me, getting in front of me, I would have been savage. Oh, dear. Okay, Barbara, thank you. Thank you for that. Brad, 30 seconds left here. Your thoughts? Yeah, just the final thoughts on what what Miss Mills said in the interview, um, I definitely don't agree with. And if if um, people are going to advocate for dogs, then we have to advocate for dogs and their safety 100%. We are the voice for dogs. And we really do need to stand up and, and, and step aside from our own personal feelings and really look at the bigger picture on how are we going to keep dogs safe? How are we going to give them the best life possible? And we okay. need to do the dog training. We need to. Brad, I always appreciate your time. Thank you for coming on today. Okay, thank you and enjoy your weekend. And thank you to all your listeners. Have a wonderful day. Hey, let's talk about the multiplex housing plan here from the provincial government. This is the density plan from BC. It would allow multiple homes to be built on a single family lot 
in communities in British Columbia. So you could have up to six homes on one lot if you're near rapid transit. You could have up to four homes on other single-family zone lots. Got Alex Hemingway standing by to discuss. Have a listen to the housing minister here now. This is Ravi Kalon. The targets for each municipality has been set, meaning more homes will be built soon for people in communities that they love. These housing targets put forward by the province mark a 30% increase in overall housing to be built in these communities compared to what's been previously planned. All right, let's discuss it now with my guest, Alex Hemingway. Alex is an economist, public finance policy analyst, Canadian Centre for Policy Alternatives. It's always great to have him on. Alex, thank you for coming on today. Hey, Mike, thanks for having me. Okay, Alex, what do you think of this plan? Because I know that you're not convinced that this is the right way, right? Tell me your thoughts on it. Well, actually, I think there's a lot. Overall, I think this is quite good. I think it's common sense. We have a housing shortage that's very severe in this province. Uh, There's some caveats to this that maybe we'll get around to. But off the top, I'd say, yeah, look, there's a housing shortage. But on most of our residential land in most of our cities, uh, you can't build multi-family housing. You can't build apartments. You can't build triplexes. You can't build townhomes. Uh, And now with this change, at least we're going to allow those smaller forms of multi-unit housing to be the default that's allowed uh, in our cities around the province. You can do a triplex, you can do a townhome. So that's a genuine step forward. And when you look at the scale of the effect that they're expecting here, they're talking about 130,000 new homes over 10 years. And that analysis, by the way, was done by by external experts, folks like uh, Jens von Bergman and uh, uh, Tom Davidoff at UBC. So that's a that's a credible estimate. That's more homes for people. That's easing the shortage. That and that helps ease the upward pressure on rents. It doesn't get us all the way there, but I think it actually makes a lot of sense. Okay, so let's talk about some of the questions and and, and caveats as you described it there that you've raised. Let's talk about the city of Vancouver. Does this legislation apply in Vancouver? Yeah, unfortunately, uh, it it mostly does not. So the the announcements that we heard this week, and there are others aside from the multiplex, for the most part, don't apply to the city of Vancouver. And the reason for that is... uh, City of Vancouver already had its own multiplex policy in place, and the way they've designed the provincial legislation, it says, you know, it applies uh, in places where there's existing single-family zoning. There's a bit of ambiguity there. It might apply in some of the duplex zones in Vancouver, but for the most part, it doesn't apply. And the reason that's a problem is the existing uh, multiplex policy in Vancouver is actually quite weak. You know, staff were projecting when they brought it in earlier this year that it was only going to create Uh, 150 uh, multiplex projects per year, roughly. So that's not nearly enough. The other issue is, of course, in Vancouver, you know, this is where we have the most severe housing shortage. Uh, We have the most underzoned land use policies uh, in the province, highest rents, most demand. We need to be doing a lot more than multiplex in this city. We need to be building apartments across the city as well and move away from this default of uh, allowing the lowest density, most expensive homes everywhere, but but effectively banning apartments in most of uh, of the city. So that's a problem both for city council and I would have liked to see the province step in uh, uh, more for the city of Vancouver as well. Okay, let me, there is pushback from some municipalities. I suspect we're going to see more of that going forward, especially because you have 
provincial legislation here that contain, contains a, a potential override. So there, there is authority here for the province to step in. If some municipalities don't get on board with this and build all this housing, go, go forward with this density, maybe the province could step in and force them to do it. And let me play a clip yep. here for you, Alex, for, for your thoughts. So this is the mayor of Richmond here, Malcolm Brody, unhappy with this direction here. And here, here's what he says, and I'll get your thoughts. What may work in one location may well not work in another location. What about the other services that are involved? Police, fires, schools, the hospitals. We're going to have cars. Where are they going to park? Okay, this is what we hear all the time about the, the parking. And we already see in some neighborhoods in Vancouver, we've talked about this show on the, uh, this issue on the show recently, where there's been some densification already and there's like parking wars breaking out. Like people are getting, getting into disputes over on-street parking. Alex, your thoughts on that? Yeah, so, so a few things I would say here. First of all, I think you, you have to keep that big picture in mind. Everyone recognizes we have a housing crisis and shortage uh, it's a common sense minimum standard to at least allow, you know, triplexes, townhomes in most areas. If we can't do that, then, you know, there's no way we're going to get out of this housing crisis. The question of infrastructure is an important one. couple things. One is uh, when we fail to build housing where it's most needed and uh, with some level of increased density, that means more homes are going to be built way out on the outskirts. We're going to get more sprawl. And the important thing there is the infrastructure cost for that low density housing is actually larger than the infrastructure costs for uh, higher density housing. So even just from an efficiency point of view, in terms of public infrastructure expenditure, uh, we need to be building denser housing. You know, the question of parking is an interesting one. Uh, there's a sensible provisions in here in terms of lowering parking requirements where you're near frequent and rapid transit. That makes sense. Uh, in terms of parking wars uh, breaking out, you know, we dedicate a huge amount of public street space to free parking in many parts of cities like Vancouver and other cities around the province. Yeah, like, uh, you know, when uh, housing is made expensive and parking is free, you have overuse of parking. So it, I think it is the case that charging appropriately uh, for the use of parking on public land should be part of uh, the management strategy here. But most importantly is, you know, supporting our public transit system and giving people those options. Lots of people would prefer not to be stuck in car traffic all day uh, if there's efficient uh, public transit available. Yeah. Okay. Speaking of expensive housing, here's another criticism I've heard of this that, okay, maybe if this works, we are going to get more ho homes built, which is great. We need more homes. But will they only be basically more unaffordable homes? Like where is there any assurance or guarantee that any of these new homes will actually be affordable for people with normal incomes? Yeah, so a, a couple of things I would say there. One is part of the reason that housing is so expensive is because we have far too little of it. Uh, yeah. So let's just get that on the record there. Having said that, you know, I've been a huge proponent uh, of increasing the supply of non-market housing and not-for-profit housing, public investment in housing. That's 
an important component of addressing this housing crisis. That's going to be absolutely crucial. That's not in this set of announcements today. Not enough is being done on that front. We're still expecting some more legislation from the government, which is talking about expanding its role as a public provider of middle and low-income housing through uh, what they're calling the BC Builds Program. That's been pushed back a bit. I think we're expecting to see it in January. But a massive expansion of, of that type of uh, public and not-for-profit housing is, A, it's more affordable than it sounds, and we could get into some of the the, the sort of economic issues there, uh, but B, it, it's essential to addressing the housing crisis, and it can help address issues like, you know, uh, making, uh, not only adding to the supply of new homes, but uh, and easing the upward pressure on rents in that way, but actually providing homes that are immediately more affordable. So I think we need a both and approach here. And, and the stuff that's being done on the zoning side is complementary to uh, what needs to be done on the non-market housing side. Hey, Alex, one more question for you here. And I certainly agree with you that we need we need more housing. We need a lot more. Here's a question I, I get a lot for your thoughts. What about co-op housing? Why do we not see more co-op housing? I know some people who live in co-ops and they love it. Like they are never going to leave there because they, they love the deal they got there. It, it seems like it's a, a win-win for, pe- for people. Why do we not see more co-op housing projects, do you think? Yeah, absolutely. We need more of that. And that would be a big part of that public and not-for-profit sector. You know, I didn't mention co-op specifically, but uh, we need more of that. Uh, it, it doesn't necessarily come free. You, de- you do need land to be put up for that. Uh, you need uh, the government to step in with uh, some form of uh, land provision or subsidy to make the rents actually lower in a new co-op. You know, I'm speaking to you from a co-op right now. I, I was in market rental housing for a long time. My partner and I finally got into a co-op. It's a, it's a lifesaver, absolutely. And we need way more of them. By the way, I, what I would say on that point as well, when you ask the not-for-profit housing sector, Uh, they will tell you that zoning constraints are a big issue for them as well. Red tape delays at City Hall, zoning constraints. That's a problem for both not-for-profit and private developers alike. So that gets us back to the both-and approach where we really do need this zoning reform to go alongside expansion of co-op and non-market housing. Okay, we're following it closely. Thanks a lot for your thoughts on it today. Thanks, Mike. Thanks for listening to the Mike Smith Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop. Tune into the show live from 9 to noon on 980 CKNW. Want to reach out to me personally with a question or comment? Send me an email, mike at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening. Season of 911 on a new night. Thursday, March 14th on Global. Stream on Stack TV.